If you have your Bibles with you this evening, I would invite you to turn to Paul's letter to the Galatians. As you know, on Sunday evenings, we have been going through together as a staff this letter to the Galatians. This evening, we're going to be looking at chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. And of a fashion, this is, in a sense, part one of two parts in this chapter of Galatians. Paul is going to be talking about walking in the Spirit and living in the Spirit. And this evening we're going to focus on what that looks like in its opposition to the flesh. And then in several weeks, because next week we will not have an evening service, and the following week, uh, Lord, uh, Lord willing, we will um, have a ordination service in which I'll be preaching but not on Galatians and then I believe it is the week after that that we will pick back up again with Galatians and I think our hopefully Lord willing newly ordained uh, assistant pastor are you preaching that or maybe it's David or is it Jason okay somebody's got it somebody's got it that's not me so I put in my time today somebody else has it but so I want you to 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 give attention to this and then sort of file it away, because it will also be helpful as we pick back up again the end of chapter 5. But for now, we're going to look at chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you. As I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask that you would open your word to us. That you would guide us into all truth. And that by your spirit, your word would change us. And that we would not merely understand and know your word, but that we would live it out. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. This passage begins in verse 16 with Paul telling us to walk by the Spirit. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Paul tells us, and it's not perhaps what we would expect, to walk by the Spirit means to fight a war. To fight a war against the flesh. Because after we come to faith, 
The sin that remains in us wants to prevent us from following the Lord. Our sin wants to prevent us from doing what we know is right. And so as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to understand this war. And we need to be committed to fighting it. And so what I would like us to see here are three things from our text. The first is the war itself. The second is the cost or the damage that's involved with the war. And then the third is the victory that we can have in this war. The war itself, the cost, and the victory. Let's begin then by looking at the war itself. Paul introduces this in verse 16, but I want to focus for the moment on the second verse, verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. So what Paul is describing here is a conflict. There are two combatants that he puts before us. The spirit and the flesh. And these are contrary principles in our life. They are not similar in any way at all. They are at odds. That's what Paul tells us. Their desires are against each other. And so... We need to look at each of these and see why they're in such opposition. First, if we think about the Spirit, the Spirit of God is what leads the believer in his life. And so, as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to understand that all that we have that is good in us is a result of the work of God. It's a result of the Spirit working in us God's will to do His will for His good pleasure. And so if you think about any love that you might have, any love for God, love for the Savior, love for neighbor, love for your fellow believer, the only reason you have that love is because it has been generated by the Spirit. We cannot say that it comes from us, that we are responsible. No, it is the Spirit of God that lives in us and works in us to do God's will. This is important because it allows us to work for the Lord while yet giving God all the glory. This must manifest itself in our life, but it's still God's work. And Paul had reminded the Galatians of this earlier. You remember back in chapter 3, he told them in verse 2, Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Why are you walking with God? Is it because you're seeking to follow the law, to earn merit, to do things on your own? Or is it because you believed and God sent His Spirit to you? Is that what brings about righteousness, joy, and peace in you? But on the contrary, there is the flesh. Now, now what is the flesh? It's used in different ways throughout the Bible. We've seen in the Gospel of John that at least in one instance, John uses it to refer to our earthiness, our muscles and bones and sinews, to describe how Jesus became flesh. The Word became flesh. But oftentimes, Paul refers to the flesh as here in a negative fashion. And we might think that because it's negative and because it also has an earthly sense to it, we might only think of it in a sensual fashion. 
They're sins of the body. They're sins maybe even of a, a sexual nature. But that's not what Paul means here, as we're going to see in just a few moments. He uses it to describe a principle that is contrary to God, contrary to the Spirit. And I think a good, short definition of the flesh that is worth remembering is this. The flesh is everything aside from God in which one places their final trust. So it really doesn't matter what it is whether it's seeming good or not, everything that you might put your final trust in, apart from God, is contrary to the Spirit. And if we think about it that way, the flesh becomes much broader than sensuality. And immediately we see this war and how difficult it is because it's not just a war against sensual sins. No, it might be the war against family or work or medicine, or knowledge, anything that you think is where your trust should be. And if you're putting your trust today in your family, in science, in medicine, in knowledge and things you can learn, in your reputation, in work, that is a part of the flesh. Anything that draws you away from the Lord, away from reliance upon the Spirit, that's what Paul is saying is the flesh. And you see why Paul then begins to describe the flesh as being under the law. Look at verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so the implication is, if the Spirit wars against the flesh, and the flesh wars against the Spirit, that if you are living in the flesh, you are under the law. And that means that you are seeking to find merit and worth in what you are doing. Paul has been saying this over and over again in this letter to the Galatians. That that is death. That your only hope is to put aside everything that is good about you. And to rely in no sense about it. And to seek only Jesus. And I think the reason Paul needs to keep repeating this to us is because it's foreign to our minds. We would believe Paul and give Paul a hearty amen if Paul says you need to get rid of all the horrible parts about you. All of the things that drag you down. All of the things that causes you to hurt other people. But we can't possibly imagine that our best works, our best abilities, our best efforts are filthy rags. They actually stand in the way of godliness. But that's what Paul's saying here. Anything we would substitute for God is of the flesh. Any place where we seek to find security and hope apart from God is vanity. And this is a temptation for every one of us. Because I have to tell you, spoiler alert, the Christian life is not one of immediate victory. If you're looking for immediate victory over sin, if you're looking to just get over that last hump when everything will get easier, when you'll have no difficulty finding time to pray, when you'll always be able to read your Bible, when you will never have sinful thoughts, then you will be waiting until glory. Because this is a war, Paul says, that rages from our very first days in Christ until the day that we die. 
And that's because these contrary principles are not only opposing, they are adversarial. They are set against one another. That's what Paul says in verse 17. They are opposed to each other. Now, this word opposed has directly the idea of an adversary. Now, let me make this very plain and practical to you. An adversary is someone who tries to beat you, who tries to trip you up, who wants victory over you. They're not satisfied if they do well, if you also do well. They want to conquer you, to beat you down. If we were to think about this in sporting terms, this is a football game where the score is 50 to 0 and they're still running the two-minute offense trying to throw and put up more and more and more points. There's never a stop here. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this word here for opposed or for adversary is used, for example, of the Pharisees who opposed Jesus who always were trying to trip up Jesus, who wanted victory over Jesus. And it shouldn't even surprise us that Paul, in another letter, 1 Timothy 5, refers to the devil himself as our adversary. This opposition is active. We, this is a bit hidden in the translation. If you look at verse 17, it says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And this is a fine translation, except it misses the active nature of this. Desires is actually a verb, not a noun here in the Greek. So we might say, the flesh is desiring opposition to the spirit. It is actively opposed. It is in action. It's not just that they happen to be set apart. It is an active war. This is no cold war. This is a hot war going on in battle. The desire of the flesh is strong and is opposition to the spirit. And these adversaries show up on a battlefield. You might imagine, especially in the days of the Bible, how opposing armies would gather together on opposite sides of a battlefield. We don't see that very often now. Now, two armies do not come and face off against each other. But back in this day, they did. They would stand on opposite sides of a field and they would charge against each other. And even earlier, in the previous century, we saw something like this. In, in the place where there's conflict now, in the Russia-Ukraine area, in World War II, there would be armies of tanks that would face off against each other and ride into battle against each other, firing their weapons. The battlefield is something that we can see. There's no hide and seek here. Where is that battlefield? Well, it's the Christian life. Because Paul is talking to believers here. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's not telling unbelievers that you need to overcome your flesh so that you can come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking to you and to me who know Jesus and who are saved and seeking to glorify God. Your life is a battlefield. And this is the main area of conflict. And sad to say... We don't always obey God. In Romans chapter 7, Paul is speaking to believers and he says, Woe is me, for the good that I would do, I do not do. And the evil that I do not wish to do, that I do. Now if that sounds a bit like you, you're in good company with the Apostle Paul. If you battle sin, 
day upon day, week upon week, know that that battle is a sign of the Spirit's work in you. Because if you had no battle, if you weren't agonizing over sin, if you didn't sense this struggle, then you wouldn't know the Lord. Because you wouldn't care. You see, unbelievers aren't struggling. They don't care if sin rages in their life. They don't seek to glorify the Lord. But Paul is speaking to Christians here. And he's telling us this because there is an abiding tension in the Christian life. You will not ever reach a magical place of victory in this life. There's nothing that you can do to shut out sin in the flesh forever. You know, there is a story of Jerome, the great church father who was the translator of the scriptures into Latin. And Jerome, like many of the early church fathers, was burdened by the sin in his life. And so he came up with an idea. He thought that the problem he had was he lived in the city and he had acquaintances around him and temptations all around him. And if he could only get out of the city, get away from all of these acquaintances, get away from all of these occasions for sin, that he would find victory, finally, in the Christian life. And so Jerome set out to the desert to, make, to gain victory over sin. But you know, there's a problem. Wherever you go, you're there. And so... He brought sin with him. And so he realized quickly that it was not just temptations. It was not just externalities. It was not just others who were leading him into sin. It was a battle that raged in his heart. It's a battle that we see all the time. No one is ever free from this tension. Sin cannot ever be wholly defeated. But we have to understand, once again... That the Spirit is the one who causes the battle. The battle itself is good. What the battle means is that you are no longer living in occupied territory. You are on the battlefield. You have been freed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are free to fight sin. Free to follow Jesus in fighting temptation. Well, Paul tells us why this battle is so important. He describes the cost or the damage that comes from the flesh. He does this in verses 19 through 21. And so when Jason takes up the following verses, it's much more encouraging to talk about joy, love, peace, patience, kindness. Your pastor gets to speak about idolatry, sorcery, jealousy, fits of anger. But it's important that we do. Because we have to understand these sins and what they mean. Now, when Paul goes through the, the fruits of the Spirit, he does so in a very organized way, which shouldn't surprise us because the Spirit is organized. God is a God of order. But the interesting thing is, is that there's some order that you can take out of these sins, out of this raging of the flesh, but you have to put things together and rearrange them. It's almost as if when Paul is talking about these sins... He's showing us that when sin comes out, it's not orderly. It's just dumped all out all over the floor. It's all mismatch. And we have to rearrange it to give it some order. 
So let's do that. First, Paul talks about the sin that rages and brings cost to the body. He says the works of the flesh are evident, and he starts with sexual immorality. Now, this is one of those few occasions when I can tell you what the Greek word is here, because you already know it even if you don't know any Greek. The Greek word here is porneia. And that should mean something to you. Because it's a very well-known word in our culture. And everything that goes along with it, sexual dysfunction, sexual immorality. And when Paul was talking about this, it was just as common in Paul's day as it is in ours. You know, it's remarkable that everything old is new again. And that the human heart doesn't change. We think that we are so different from people who have lived throughout all of the world, and we're not. We face the same sins of the heart. And so in Paul's day, in the Roman Empire, sexual immorality was rampant. So much so that it was thought normal unless it went to some kind of extreme excess. And isn't that where we are today? Unless something goes to the point where we find it physically repulsive or disgusting, we just say, well, that's the way the world is. Everybody's involved in this. You see the statistics of divorce, of the filth that is out on our airwaves, of the number of not just men, but women who are addicted to sexual immorality. It's everywhere. Just like our day, today, it was in Paul's day. And if we think about it, this is contrary to the spirit. Because what is sexual immorality the opposite of? It is the opposite of love. Of selflessness. Of care. And the spirit is love. That's the fruit of the spirit. It's actually the first fruit of the spirit that's mentioned in verse 22. And so we see the opposition here. The second sin related to the body is impurity, Paul talks about. Now this is a result of the actions we take. It is moral evil that spreads corruption. It is vice that leads to yet more corruption. And so let me see if I can describe it for you in a way that would be unfamiliar. One of the great Greek orators, a man by the name of Demosthenes, used this word, impurity. And the way he described it is, it was pretending friendship with someone for the purpose of doing them injury. You hear that? It's pretending good in order to do harm. That's what impurity is. And the Bible tells us we're not called to impurity. Rather, we are called to holiness, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. A third sin of the body is sensuality, Paul says at the end of verse 19. And this is a sense of no shame, of no decency at all. This is the sin that characterizes Sodom, Peter says in 2 Peter 2.7. It's a sensuality. It is the opposite of of goodness, the opposite of faithfulness. It is faithlessness. It is wickedness. Then fourthly, Paul picks up a bit later in verse 21, drunkenness. And we have to remember what drunkenness is. It is a weakening of the reason. 
It makes us unable to handle crisis. We are no longer in control. It is the opposite of self-control. And what it does is it leads to further sins. And so when you think about drunkenness, this is not solely confined to alcohol. It's not even solely confined to illicit drugs. It is anything that would cause us to lose our reason, to lose our self-control. And so related to this is the word that Paul talks about next, which is orgies. That is carousing. This is a very 2022 sin. Except for we don't call it this specifically, certainly not in the Greek. The English verb that we would use for this is partying. It's letting go of all of our inhibitions, all of our reason, and simply satisfying the flesh. Well, there's a second category of sins that bear a cost. Not just those that cost the flesh or the body, but those that bring a cost to the soul. And Paul picks this up in verse 20. He talks about idolatry. Now, what is idolatry? I think for many of us, we have an image of idolatry as like a totem pole. Or people in, somewhere in the jungles dancing around totem poles or worshiping rocks or big statues of a bird or something like that. And certainly that has happened throughout human history. But really, what idolatry is, it is finding a substitute for God. And when you view idolatry that way, then you really have to examine your heart. Because you can't say, but pastor, last time I looked, I didn't set a totem pole up in my backyard. But that's not the question. The question is, do you have a substitute for God in your life? Is there something else you look to? Is it the government? Or your job? Or your spouse? Or your family? Or money? Any of these things that we look to instead of looking to God are idolatry. And that in and of itself is a mark of the world. It's the flesh. When we turn away from God and turn towards something else, it's a mark of worldliness. The next word that Paul describes is sorcery. And again, this is another word, a perfectly good translation, but I think sometimes we define it so that it misses its mark. You know, we look out and we say, you know, there doesn't seem to be anyone in the room with a big pointy hat with stars on it. I don't see anyone waving a magic wand. So we don't have any sorcerers in our midst. That's good. The Greek word here is also a word that you would recognize. It's pharmakia, like pharmacy. And what it is, it is something that's dominant in our society. It is using things to cause harm to others. That's what sorcerers do. That's what Pharaoh's magicians did. And we certainly are filled with this. Think about all of the medicines, the pharmacies that are meant to do good that are used to kill infants in the womb. That's sorcery. It's wickedness. It's of the flesh. Think about euthanasia. How people are given medications that are meant to ease pain. Instead, to kill them. That's sorcery. So we have sins that affect the body, sins that affect the soul. But you can't contain sin. 
The flesh will never be boxed in. And so it bursts out even beyond us. And there's a third area of sin. And that is, sin goes out to the community itself. Paul tells us in verse 20 that one of the works of the flesh is enmity. Now what is enmity? It's kind of an odd sounding word. Sounds like enemy. And it should. Because what enmity is, is cherishing hostility toward another. Now see, we might think of enmity or enemies as people involved in actual physical violence or fighting each other or hurting each other. But it's much broader than that. This describes the man who stands in the corner and seethes with hatred, who nourishes it in his heart. And that leads, Paul says, to strife. And strife is the antithesis of peace. It is quarreling. It was the sin in Corinth and in many of the churches that Paul planted. Now, what can we do if we are bound up in our community, if we see enmity in others or in ourselves, if we see strife in our midst, there is a cure. The Spirit does war against the flesh, and that cure is humility. The way we stop divisions, the way we stop strife, is by viewing others as better than ourselves. Do you notice how quickly conflict goes away when someone stops trying to win? When they stop trying to press their own advantage? Even stating that causes the temperature to drop dramatically, doesn't it? That's the work of the Spirit. Enmity, strife, and jealousy, Paul says. Now, this we often think of the green-eyed monster. We think it's confined to marriage. A wife is jealous of her husband, or a husband is jealous of his wife. But that's not really the boundaries of this. Jealousy is associated with strife itself. It is selfishness. What jealousy is at its core is wanting what others have. Being jealous of what they have. And let me tell you, jealousy can rear its head so often, even in the midst of the church. I wish we had as many people as that church did. I wish we had the music that that church did. I wish we had the preacher that that church did. I wish we had the programs that that church did. I just wish... We had things better. Why can't we? And you see how that jealousy leads to strife, leads to anger, leads to conflict. And that's actually the next word that Paul mentions, fits of anger. There is no rationality. When we begin to be bound up with strife and with hatred and with jealousy, we don't think rationally. We don't even think about what is in our own interest. You might think of fits of anger like this. Have you ever had occasion to have someone help you with something and you start to describe what they're supposed to do? And in the middle of your description and instructions, they say, got it, and they run off. What happens there? So let me ask you, how well do you think it would go if we were working on an excellent repair project here at the church 
And Daryl tried to tell me what it was I was supposed to do. And two sentences in, I said, got it, Daryl. I'm on the case. Would you trust me with anything I touched? I hope not. Because it's not listening. It's not rationality. It's running off, flying off, we might say, the handle. And that leads even more to rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. This is always evil. It is trying to climb the ladder of success on the backs of others. It is forming divisions. It's a party spirit that appears in us. It's heresies. And let me make it very practical for you. What Paul's talking about here are cliques. Are you in a clique? Are there only certain people that you speak to at church on a Sunday morning? Because they're most like you. And they're easy to relate to. You see, Paul tells us that's not the work of the Spirit. Now, I'm not telling you you can't talk to your friends. But what I am saying is the work of the Spirit is for us to reach out to others who aren't like us. To encourage others to not be bound up in our party spirit Because it begins with a small click and it leads to a party spirit which leads to division and destruction. You see, Paul then says, envy in verse 21. And what envy is at its core is not being able to bear another person's prosperity. And the best way that I can illustrate it for you is this way. It's the person that goes into a parking lot and sees a really nice car and doesn't like the fact that someone else has a really nice car. So they take their keys out of their pocket and they walk down the side of the car and they key the car up with their key. doesn't benefit them at all. All it does is deny someone else something nice or good. It's envy. Now, We've spent some time with this, but do not think this is in the least exhaustive. Paul makes that clear in verse 21. He says, and things like these. It's as if Paul's saying, I could go on and on and on. And you probably don't want the pastor to go on and on for another couple of hours about sins that we battle and fight with. It's self-evident to others, even to those who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it shows us how much of the world can be in our midst. Well, what can we do then as we battle the flesh in this war? We need to start by listening to the warning that Paul gives to us. He tells us, don't rebel against the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Don't gratify the desires of of the flesh. Be led by the Spirit. Do not do this. He says, I've warned you before. He says, this is an habitual action. The flesh is rooted in rebellion. The flesh is not primarily sensual. It's primarily rebellious. And so, Paul feels the need to repeat this to us. He said, I warned you before, I'm warning you again, and I'm warning you in the strongest possible terms. You will not inherit the kingdom of God unless you fight against the flesh. Now, this is a reminder to us that the kingdom is future. Now stop and think about it for a moment. 
If you didn't want to walk in the Spirit, if you didn't want to follow God's law, if you didn't want to seek holiness, then why in the world would you want to live in the place where God's law is always obeyed? Why would you want to be with the Lord in glory? If your desire is to run against God's law, why would you want to live with the Lord? And you see, there's no inheritance for those who war against God and His Word because the inheritance comes to sons, to those who have the Spirit, Paul says in Romans 8.14. And so Paul tells us that what we are to do is to walk in the Spirit. And you've heard this before. Paul uses this idiom over and over again. To walk means to live. It means day upon day putting one foot in front of the other. You can do that even in the most difficult of times and circumstances, right? When you're exhausted beyond anything, when you can't even think straight, what do you do? You put one foot in front of the other, day by day, moment by moment. And that's what Paul is telling us, the way in which we should live in the Spirit. And that brings an orderliness to our lives. It puts priorities in their proper order. Because what we do as we walk in the Spirit is we get our marching orders, our priority from God's Word. And there is a promise that's found here in this. As we struggle against the flesh, do you see the promise here in verse 16? Walk by the Spirit... And you might not gratify the desires of the flesh. Wait. There's a chance you may be able not to gratify the desires of the flesh. Is that what your Bible reads? No, what my Bible says is you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's a promise from God. So that as we struggle against the flesh, as we seek to walk in the Spirit, we have God's promise before us. How do we know this? Do you struggle with sin? Do you struggle to walk in the Spirit? Do you struggle to treat others more highly than yourself? Well, what you need to know is that the victory doesn't depend on you. As a matter of fact, the victory has already been won. It's certain. Jesus won the victory on the cross. You will be delivered from the flesh. You will walk in the Spirit. You will inherit the kingdom of God by faith. So we must struggle. We must strive. But when we know that the victory is already won, that puts a little bit more energy in your life, doesn't it? It puts a little extra pep in your step. Because you know, even if you slide back a bit, that Jesus has your back. That Jesus is the one who has won the victory. And so as you go throughout life tonight, tomorrow, and this week, remember that you will be in a war. Don't let it catch you by surprise. You know, you see these old war films, and occasionally there'll be, a conflict going on, there'll be artillery 
firing off and mortars and machine gun bullets and everywhere. And inevitably in one of these uh, situations, there's some private who's stuck behind a wagon or a hill or a bunker or something, and he's frightened and he can't even hold his gun. And usually it's some grizzled sergeant that comes up and smacks him in the head and he says, get in the war, boy. Let's go. That's what Paul's saying to you. Get in the war. Fight. For we know that Jesus has won the victory. Let's pray.